Price, and you're listening to The Numbers Station. On today's episode, I'm going to tackle uh, a fairly dark subject, which is something I've been thinking about doing for a little while and something that I also think will help uh, provide some important background for um, some upcoming, you know, episodes that that, uh, that I hope are going to be um, happening soon. Before I jump in, I'm going to say just a quick uh, word about, you know, the continuing evolution of the format. Um, I found it enormously time-consuming and difficult to... Uh, to edit to edit episodes to try and make them as perfect as possible everything for for everything I say to be as correct as it can be and to go through and edit out every time I say um or you know and uh, I just want to kind of jump in today uh, both to make it easier for me and hopefully I don't know um, it won't make a huge difference for you as a listener if I'm just sort of freestyling versus trying to um, say everything perfectly to the best of my ability. You know, and I might as well you put it out there too that that hearing me talk in this way, I'm uh I'm doing something that I consider a sort of spiritual exercise. Um I don't know I I don't know exactly what terminology I would want to use to characterize it, but there's a sort of technique of sort of feeling your way into um, the spiritual worlds that are both out there and within yourself, um, and it works by kind of following your impulses of intuition, or uh, you know, just just kind of letting things come out on their own sometimes too, you know, and finding out like having a sort of playful, creative, exploratory um, attitude toward towards. Uh, you know, just trying to see what's out there in that unseen, unseen spiritual world. As always, I hope it's not too tedious to listen to or painful, but I do think really interesting stuff comes up this way. So anyways, I've been thinking a lot the past few years about hell, and and I suppose especially the iconography, um, looking at art and uh, also sort of prophetic descriptions of what hell is like and what people imagine it's like um, and what happens there because it's not um, outside the realm of comp- human comprehension. You know, it's it's something that, uh, that we understand and have a reaction to. Um, so, so I guess where I want to start, though, is with, you know, what, where I... The, this kind of line of thinking for me first first really started with my interest in Satan as a literary character um because as, as I've mentioned in a previous episode there uh isn't really uh any character with the proper name Satan in the Hebrew Bible in the book of Job there's someone who's kind of starting to emerge with uh uh that title rather than a proper name, but it's only really with Christianity um, and Christian demonology that that Satan really kind of emerges from the page into um, the imaginative world of the uh, shadows around um, the early Christians um, as as a proper you know as a proper character, especially the the character of Satan. Um, as 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 a as an entity that is believed to exist. So, uh, there's w- one of my favorite books on the subject. Um, is called The Old Enemy. It's uh it's out of print and and fairly relatively obscure. But um, and there there are quite a few other books that have done something similar. Um, looking at the emergence of uh, care uh, of Satan in in uh, Jewish and Christian literature. Um, but what was really unique about the old enemy was that where he starts the the story is with the ancient monsters um, of epics like the um, the Epic of Gilgamesh, or um, 
I don't know. It could be uh, he, he doesn't go there with Egyptian stories because he's talking about you know a, a Semitic Hebrew near near um, prehistory. Uh, so he's looking more at like Mesopotamia. Um, but but just that insight I thought was quite brilliant that um, that there is a connection between the monsters that the ancient heroes. Uh, fought and wrestled with like um, like Gilgamesh with uh, Humbaba is is the one that uh, that he talks about in the book I believe um, or Hercules with uh, his various labors which Ferguson isn't talking I think isn't I think it was Ferguson who wrote this book um, uh, no Neil Forsyth Neil Forsyth F O R S Y T H so um, it's not it's not out of print it's just super expensive um but anyways i thought that that was you know a very uh uh incisive way to begin the story was uh talking about um the ancient heroes and their uh labors or trials with um monster adversaries and the relationship between the divine king or the terrestrial king and uh, monsters more generally. This was a, a, a big thing in um, uh, not just the ancient Near, Near East, not even just the ancient world, but throughout the entire history of monarchy. Uh, there was this um, sense that one of the reasons the king was the king he was the king of all the people in his kingdom because he was the most powerful person and one of the responsibilities that went along with being the most powerful person in the kingdom was that he was responsible for slaying um, fantastic monsters uh, and this continued up until I think the late Middle Ages arguably you know we've seen um, some controversies within the last few decades with uh, the Trump family uh, going on safari, you know, and killing some endangered animals. And uh, a case could be made that this is a continuation of the very, very ancient tradition of aristocracy hunting, you know, extraordinary and extraordinarily dangerous animals. So Forsyth made that brilliant connection I think between Satan and the great monsters and great monstrous adversaries of human imagination so you know moving forward from Satan as the um, monster of ancient imaginations the next connection I'd like to make then is between monsters and nightmares so I've also been interested in this a psychiatrist from Harvard named Dr. John Mack. Uh, he won a Pulitzer Prize for his biography of Lawrence of Arabia. And he was, I think he was an important part of the uh, psychiatry department at Harvard University. I'm not sure if he was the head of psychiatry, um, but he was a professor of psychiatry at, at Harvard. And um, he specialized in nightmares and wrote a very interesting book called uh, I think it's called Nightmares and Human Conflict yes Nightmares and Human Conflict where he looks at the relationship between the kinds of uh, uh, nightmares that people have when they're asleep and dreaming and the relationships uh, between those nightmares and the conflicts, the experiences of conflict that people have during the day, during waking waking consciousness. And in his uh, the later part of his life, he became a very controversial figure because he opened up within, you know, under the aegis of Harvard University, he opened up this uh, center for the uh, treatment of people who claim to have been abducted by aliens. And it was controversial because he seemed really to uh, accept that they had really undergone an alien abduction experience and 
the purpose of the center was to provide uh, counseling for the trauma of uh, of their abduction. But the reason I'm bringing him up here now is that I saw a really interesting relationship between his work on alien abduction and his work on nightmares that he had done previously. And I, as far as I know, I've never seen anything that he wrote um, linking the two together. But I'm certainly not an expert in his uh, his books and papers, so maybe it's there, maybe it isn't. But for me, it seems really interesting that that uh, this uh, this interest in nightmares shifted to or developed into an interest in um, people's alleged alien abduction experiences. Now, I've been talking with one of my friends about some of this stuff. So I suppose for me there was, up until a few years ago, a real focus on the character of Satan as an agent of harm within a wider heroic narrative. He's the antagonist of the uh, Jewish and then Christian and Muslim cosmic narratives, you know? he's he's the uh the enemy of the believers and not just the enemy but the uh arch enemy the uh king of all adversaries so i have been sort of focused on that character and then within the last few years that shifted as i started learning more about um the holocaust in particular alongside other kinds of catastrophic traumas, such as the people who uh, survived the bombing of Hiroshima, or some of these stories about children who survived the most horrific torture you can imagine, you know, um, some very, very disturbing and disturbed people out there. Um, and I suppose it was at that point that I started thinking, fo shifting focus a little bit more to hell itself. And the reason that that shift started happening was because I was reading about uh, the people who had these experiences, um, especially the um, surviving the atom bomb or uh, surviving the concentration camps. Um, the, those people who survived and came out of those experiences, they used the language of hell to describe what they had been through. And to provide a little more context, uh, if you have, um, if you identify as uh, in any way sensitive, you might want to, you know, skip forward a minute or so. I'm going to introduce some images here that I found particularly disturbing that kind of evoke the image of uh, uh, of what exactly I mean when I say these people said that they had experienced hell. Um, Robert Lifton was a psychiatrist who wrote about the uh, citizens who survived the bombing of um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He said that um, the people who were present in the city when the bombs were detonated um, often experienced a flash of light and intense heat and then the ones who survived woke up to find themselves um, often underneath. Uh, most of the buildings uh, were wooden and so they found themselves underneath uh, stru the, the structures had collapsed and um, the entire city, you know, their entire environment uh, was completely destroyed and um, they didn't understand what had happened. Earlier in the morning there had been a bomb warning but it was um, subsequently they were told that the warning you know, was the danger was over and that uh, you know they could return to life as normal and then it was maybe half an hour or 45 minutes later that the bombs actually hit so they a lot of people who, you know who were waking up 
didn't understand what had happened. And um, there's one man who was a little bit outside of the city and um, saw people coming, you know, out of areas closer to the epicenter. And he, the way he described it, he said that um, often they were so badly burnt that he couldn't tell if he was looking at them from the front or the back. Um, they might be charred completely black. Um, and he described having, you know, some very young girls walking towards him and he did, just didn't understand. Like he, this is this point where the people didn't understand what had happened. He didn't understand why the girls did not have any skin, you know, on their bodies. And so afterwards, when, uh, people were talking to, uh, um, Dr. Lifton, as he was uh, writing his book about this, they would describe w what they um, had experienced using the terminology and the um, the metaphors and images and the language of uh, the Buddhist description of hell. And so I include that description of these very graphic details to sort of illustrate that I think, you know, it's a fair characterization. So returning to those um, prophetic descriptions of what hell looks like and what people in hell are experiencing, and especially artwork. If you look at uh, art artwork, especially from the uh, Middle Ages in Christian Europe, there's uh, plenty of paintings um, of the uh, sorts of agonies people experience in hell. And so approaching those images as nightmares in the sense of, um, you know, John Mack's work uh, on nightmares and how they relate to waking conscious experiences. Um, my impression is that the overwhelming majority of images of hell, what they are depicting is people who are having experiences of being tortured. They, uh, the predominant, the predominant experience, I suppose, of the person who is in hell, what they are experiencing is um, being p in pain and um, not having the power to protect them themselves or to make the pain stop. And sometimes that is administered by angels or demons or other, you know, some beings who are uh, in charge of administering the torture. And those beings who are in charge are always more powerful, obviously, than the, um, than the individuals who are suffering. So, so that's what I would describe what I would characterize as the quintessence of that experience of being in hell is um, being in pain and being unable to stop the pain. And I think that most people understand that intuitively, that that's what hell means when we use the word or the metaphor of being in hell very casually uh, in normal conversation. Often what we mean is just that, uh, just that, that experience of being hurt and, uh, and powerless to stop it. So <clears throat> turning then to the Holocaust, what was, um, particularly memorable or one of the many memorable aspects of the stories that, uh, that I heard from the survivors was, um, about the experience of being transported into the camps and processed into the camps. And as I've, as I mentioned, many people who tell those stories of their own personal experience of the Holocaust, um, they use the language of, uh, of, of, in the images of hell to describe the experience that the concentration camp being, uh, you know, taken and taken to and processed into the concentration camp was an experience of entering into hell. Uh, there's one of the uh, encyclopedias of 
the Holocaust that's published by the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. All these materials are available online at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum website, but they publish a encyclopedia of camps and ghettos. And uh, I remember looking at a physical copy of this book at the um, museum library and um, on the frontispiece, you know, the, 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 the picture that they often put right at the beginning of a book, uh, there's a picture of the um, entry, the gate leading into, um, I believe it's Dachau, and on the gate it says, abandon all hope ye who enter here, which is uh, a quote from Dante's Inferno, in Dante's Inferno as he enters into the gate of hell. That's what's written across the, the top of the gate. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Now, people were taken to the, these uh, camps on trains. Uh, they were crammed into railway cars um, like they were livestock, and they might spend uh, days, sometimes weeks, inside one of these cars, um, as they were transported to a camp and um, another vivid image that I uh, you know took away from reading about these stories was the image of the emotional environment inside the cars what it was like and the predominant emotion of the people being transported to the camps was uh, you know just primal panic um, you know, people were having extraordinarily severe panic attacks, um, screaming, and um, panicking in a way that is, uh, I think, quite appropriate to the horror of the situation. And then when they arrive at the camps, the ones who have survived the journey, which um, I don't know, sometimes might be a fraction of the people who went into the cars, uh, when the doors open onto the camp, the scene is, uh, you know, they describe it as the door, the doors opening into hell and seeing these, uh, you know, at this point, no one had seen images like this of, uh, uh, you know, what the, um, the prisoners, you know, who, who survived, you know, they described them as sort of walking skeletons. You know, no one had, as far as I know, you know, no one had ever seen anything like that before. Um, and so there, there, there's just these walking skeletons and, um, I'm sure more people screaming and, uh, um, a scene, I suppose, beyond your worst possible nightmare uh, opening up in front of you. Now, as someone who was studying and learning about the Holocaust, at least partly from a theological perspective. One big takeaway, one big lesson that I learned from from all this was that I believe after the Holocaust we can no longer accept any narrative about hell that characterizes it as a place where God sends people to punish them because they've been bad. That was not what happened in the Holocaust. If you know, if you're accepting the way that I'm characterizing this um, waking nightmare that was the Holocaust and other, you know, among among experiences of massive physical and psychological catastrophe, catastrophic destruction and torture, the people in these stories who are being tortured are not the bad guys. The bad guys are the ones who believe that they deserve to be tortured, who even look at them in a way that they deserve this kind of treatment. Those are the bad guys in the story. So whether you believe you have some idea of what happens after death or not, or if you prefer to take this one reading of heaven and hell that I am, offering here as um, metaphors or maybe dreamlike memories or premonitions of 
experiences that people have here on earth i mean we could you could debate the afterlife until we're blue in the face but i don't think anybody can deny that um in this world people do have experiences of people do have extreme experiences including experiences of extreme pain which i think i propose can rightfully be characterized as uh an experience of sort of what it's like to be in hell whether you believe in hell as a place in the afterlife or as an experience that people have here on earth in this life after the holocaust i think that it's it's impossible for anyone to continue making the argument that hell is a place of punishment for sins I don't care what you've done, even if someone is guilty of having committed a crime, nobody deserves to be tortured. And the way this came up within the past 24 hours or so, I've been talking to one of my good friends about lucid dreaming, and and I was trying to remember why a certain sleep hypnosis program I had tried to um, to trigger or, or to uh, produce a lucid dream either didn't work for me or I, I had to abandon it. And it was because that at the time these were the uh this was the kind of research that I was deeply immersed in. And I was really scared because um because I felt like, you know, maybe the reality that I'm waking up to is that we actually are in hell and just haven't fully become conscious of the fact yet that we're being processed into it very slowly, but that's the reality that we're in. I don't believe that, but at the time it seemed very possible to me and it was a, I think, uh, understandably, a very disturbing thought. So in Buddhist cosmology also, there's a book called Meditative States in Tibetan Buddhism, which goes through all of the different realms that you can be born into in in buddhist cosmology which includes a sort of they don't like to call it heaven they call the i think it's a good a, a much better characterization they call it the waste realm you know the place where um people have everything they want to such a, a super abundance that they're just like uh, throwing it away and wasting everything so that's the mundane sort of terrestrial version of heaven I also kind of associate that with celebrity um, and and especially what celebrity does to young people you know that the way that uh, getting everything you want in this world you know can um, be really bad for people and lead to some serious addiction problems and uh, and, and death uh, and certainly not is not um, the heaven we imagine that it would be if you got everything you wanted. And then there's a hell. There's a hell realm. There's actually two hell realms: a hot and a cold hell, um, and so on. And and the reason that the 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 main relevance to it, it's a great book. And if you're interested, certainly check it out. But um, the the relevance to lucid dreaming, and and my experience of it, you know. In the, in the time that I'm that I'm talking about today, is that in this book, um, the Lama says that when you're reborn into one of these six realms of samsara uh, of of you know worldly existence, I don't know if that's a great translation, but um, when you're reborn into one of the six realms of Buddhist cosmology, including the hell realm, that um, it's not like a journey in the sense of being transported from the human realm up to the top or down to the bottom um it's not like a going somewhere in that sense of a uh uh uh, being transported over physical distance but rather when you're reborn being reborn into one of those realms what it means is that realm just suddenly appears all around you like that and so remembering that I made it particularly disturbing for me um, to be imagining that I was waking up 
from my hypnosis state to realize that uh that I was really in hell, which was uh you know how the Lama says what what he says it's like to enter into one of the realms um and the way that I snapped out of this was um you know I was taking classes with Cornell West at the time he was my master's thesis advisor, and he came to um one of my classes that was a more a small more intimate setting where we could ask him questions and in his writings and in his lectures he's very open about um struggling the experience of despair and how it's a constant struggle even for him um every single day not to be pulled down into despair and so when i had this opportunity i asked him about that and i asked him what do you do about it um and his answer was much uh gentler um more diplomatic than how i'm going to say it here but the gist of what he said was uh something along the lines of like alex don't sit in your chair here at harvard university and think you're going to talk about despair you know <laughs> you don't know despair as a um you know privileged Harvard graduate student uh, with all the world at your feet, you know, and, and no, no worries, no, no pain in the world. So there was that. And then the next part that really helped me snap out of it was, um, I guess, when I really fully understood or it occurred to me to remind myself that the stories I was reading about, about the people who um were the targets of nazi persecution in the holocaust or uh the survivors of the uh atom bomb or uh um you know severe chronic childhood abuse those stories weren't about me and i'm not the one who suffered reading about them learning about them thinking about them but the people who experienced those things those were the people who suffered, you know? And so um, that really kind of helped me wake up to realize, no, I'm, you know, I'm not in hell. I'm in a good place. And uh, and I should, just, I should just chill out about that. And now I guess, and now I guess the, um, I guess one of the final things I'll say about it for the moment, I might, you know, come up with a couple more points to make before I wrap all this up, but I feel like I'm approaching the end of this uh this episode and um and I'm thinking about this Buddhist idea that your thoughts create your reality. Uh this is something I've heard, you know, for many many years from Tibetan Buddhist teachers that uh all of the things around you are not the cause of happiness or the cause of suffering but they are the condition of happiness or the condition of suffering and it's actually your thoughts which are the cause of whatever happiness or hopelessness or whatever it is that you feel this is essentially the um foundational premise of uh cognitive behavioral therapy and I believe that it's to, that it's true to a certain degree and within certain situations. So in the story I've just told, you can see the degree to which that's true, that I was uh, in Harvard University, and with my mind, I managed to turn that into literally believing that I was in hell, um, just, just through my mind and my thoughts and my uh, thinking process. I was able to manifest what I experienced at the time as um, a true objective perception of being in, or at least, you know, in the at the gates entering into the hell realm. Um, and the emotions that I experienced were a reaction to, to that thought, to that um, subjective perception of the danger in my environment. Um, I was very, very scared my fear was very real and you can't imagine what kinds of nightmares i was having um for the first time in my life i did have 
uh, nightmares where uh, I was in hell. I've never seen such a thing before. And just like the title of that book suggests, meditative states, it was my meditative state that created my experience of reality. But I do think you can take it too far, and I do think that it's absurd to suggest that um, the concentration camp prisoners were suffering because of their negative thinking. It's ridiculous. When I have an opportunity, when I see one of my llamas again, I'll certainly ask them about this and get back to you about what they have to say about that. But, um, but the way I see things, it's not the negative thinking of the people who were the targets of persecution in that situation that was the cause of their pain. It was the negative thinking of the perpetrators that was the cause of the pain of, you know, the prisoners. And that word prisoner provides, I think, an interesting and important segue here to one other point I wanted to make about some relationship between hell and prison. And I'm thinking on a couple different registers, one of them being the Hebrew Bible, the, uh, the story of people being imprisoned sort of has a parallel, especially like in the book of Genesis with uh, um, Joseph. It's that downward um, movement of being put into the pit, uh, into the abyss, into the dungeon underneath Pharaoh's palace is, is you know, where that prison is. So on a cosmic level, hell is like God's prison, God's dungeon, where all the sinners are tortured. God forbid. And we do hear people, even in our relatively humane modern Western prison system, you know, the prisoners still describe it as an experience of being in hell. After watching more than a few episodes of Locked Up Abroad, and also reading about, you know, the modern history of torture, I do believe that prisons outside of Europe and America are often much, much, much worse. But still, people use that language of being of of, of prison being hell, and uh, and I do think there's a very, very deep um, truth in that. That, uh, as I was describing earlier, the main characteristic of the main experience of someone in hell is of being powerless, having your freedom taken away, which is the whole point of what prison is supposed to do, you know? The the logic behind it, as I understand it, is that um, the law says you have freedom as long as you don't, you know, commit any major crimes, and the punishment for using your freedom to, uh, you know, commit a major crime is we take your freedom away from you. So that's, that's I think, a, a fair characterization of the logic behind prison, is that it is supposed to take your freedom away, specifically your freedom to hurt your, your, you know, your freedom, your ability to hurt other people. So there's something really interesting going on there with, uh, you know, I'm just thinking, thinking theologically at the moment of, uh, the, the theme of slavery in the Hebrew Bible and, uh, the exodus from Egypt as liberation from, from, from slavery, slavery being, that state of not having freedom. There's some really interesting overlapping layers here with the uh, concepts of and experiences, I suppose, of, of prison, slavery, and being in hell. Ultimately, my belief about this is that we need to completely revise, reconsider, reconceive all of our ideas and beliefs about punishment. There's this logic behind it that it's supposed to teach people a lesson, and that's what it's there for. But does it work? No. It's easiest to see with children. The more severely they're punished, the worse their behavior problems become. It has the exact opposite effect of what it ostensibly pretends to do. And so I do think there's a sense of uh, insincerity in punishment that um, 
punishment has never been about teaching anyone a lesson. It's always been about putting someone in their place and not in their proper place, in their place at the bottom of the uh, hierarchy of power, I suppose. They're, they're putting them in their place as submissive, as compliant. None of these are original thoughts about punishment. People have been making these arguments for decades and centuries, I'm sure. So I do think this is this is just a sort of ad hoc overview of my thinking about hell. And I think there's a lot here to, to meditate on and to continue thinking about more in more day in more depth. All right, so I said what I had to say yesterday and uh, didn't quite wrap this episode up and slept on it, and I'm coming back, uh, listening to it again now and trying to figure out, um, I know I want, and I imagine many listeners want, the episode to have like a neat, tidy ending where things come together and the themes that I introduced in the beginning of... um, what dreams and nightmares and monsters and hell and everything comes together in some um tidy moral lesson or something um and this is all stuff that I'm still deeply immersed in and trying to figure out myself I don't fully understand how um thoughts create realities although I think I've persuaded myself here uh that there is obviously a degree to which that's true um so I think that I do just have two more bullet points, I guess, to cover here before I stop talking and call it an episode. The first one has to do with the observation I made about um, the hell in the Holocaust um, not being created by the negative thinking of the targets of persecution, but by the perpetrators, the Nazis. And I think that this uh, hopefully, if uh, it comes together right, will segue naturally into the second bullet point that I want to make about, on the one hand, stories and myths and beliefs, and a point, I think, where I feel like I'm not here, where it's time to step out of that and instead look in an entirely different way at uh, root causes and um, the reality of what's actually going to work if we want to... Um, break this cycle of manifesting hell on earth for ourselves as a single human body, so to speak. Um, So starting then with um, on the German side, I suppose. This, This is an area I still want to do more reading and research about, but my instinct at the moment is that the the place to look for the root causes of the Holocaust is in uh, German, Germany's defeat at the end of World War One. Within the military ranks, uh, I, Hitler was a, a a soldier, I believe, in the uh, German military in World War One. I'm not exactly sure what his rank was, but I know he was uh, uh, involved in that war and part of the experience of being humiliated and defeated um, in in the war. And so when some of these soldiers were asking themselves and each other and history, you know, what happened, what went wrong, you know, some of them, the same way I think you're going to find anywhere, there was a, a nationalist faction that had this concept of Germany as the greatest nation, um, and so when they tried to come up with an explanation, how had it happened that the greatest nation on the planet had been defeated, the answer that they came up with was that, well, obviously, um, we were sabotaged from within somehow, some kind of alien extraterrestrial foreign, let's say foreign influence, uh, intruded itself and, uh, dirtied us, you know, to uh, to pollute our glorious purity and make us weak, and that was how we got defeated. I know there's a German word for this, for the enemy within, 
um, I can't remember it right now, but as I'm looking, I'm seeing that there's uh, an article on the uh, U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum website titled Defining the Enemy, which is all about, you know, the history of, 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 of how this happened, um, how, how the Nazis came to identify uh, who it was that um, were their enemies in within uh, their nation and eventually in the world who needed to be um, purified out of existence. You know, but but where I'm going with this today, what I'm thinking about about that, what the relevance of that to what we've been talking about today is, you know, kind of my example of that I was uh, giving of when I believed myself to be uh, in hell in my dorm room at Harvard, um, the same way I created that reality with my mind. The Nazis created uh, similarly uh, it, their own reality collectively, um, where they also perceived like I've I've defined here hell as the um, perception of yourself as trapped in an environment uh, where you're either you know being tortured or or hurt uh, or even just the perception of the danger that you can't escape from. So with their minds, they created the perception of this uh, danger in the environment around them. And the fact that they had just been defeated in the war, I imagine, would only help to reconfirm this perception. It's, it strikes me as very similar to uh, a process that we see in the experience of uh, trauma following a violent assault, for example. In Judith Herman's book, Trauma and Recovery, one of the uh, symptoms she uh, talks about at some length of um, post-traumatic stress is uh, hypervigilance, um, the perception of threat and malicious, malicious intention all around you. There's another book called The Body in Pain by Elaine Scarry, The Body in Pain, where she kind of characterizes war as a contest in who can out-harm the other. So that's striking me as really interesting in this moment as I'm using this vocabulary to talk about the uh, birth of the Nazis out of the trauma of military defeat in World War I. I don't mean to imply anything morally by it, but, uh, but only to um, introduce, I, I guess, the suggestion from Professor Scary that uh, war is a contest of causing trauma, and the winner is the one who succeeds in, I don't know, I might say, who succeeds in becoming the biggest monster. And even as these words come out of my mouth, I'm thinking about the complexity of it and how, from our uh, American side, for example, you know, relative to Germany, we appeared to be the biggest monster. And I'm talking about World War II here, that uh, relative to the Jews and the other um, prisoners in the concentration camps, um, America was the Messiah. The same way Darius was the Messiah in the book of Daniel. Anyways, I'm kind of going off on a tangent. The, uh, the, the, the thread that I was trying to follow was, that, um, was about the way that the uh, defeated soldiers within the German army at the end of World War I came to uh, create this mental reality, this uh, perceived reality, this environment in which they had been victimized by this global Jewish conspiracy. So in that sense, how they manifested the hell on earth that they created was by perceiving this uh, adversary, this enemy, this danger in their environment that they needed to protect themselves from. And so within that mindset, within that mental reality they had created for themselves, Hitler was their messiah. He was the one who was going to save them from the enemies who had brought them so low, humiliated and defeated and... Um, and he was the one who was going to make Germany great again. So I'm not even sure in the end that I would characterize it as necessarily negative thinking, 
they certainly developed some very ugly stereotypes about the Jews, which you can see, you know, you can find very easily on the internet on the Holocaust Memorial Museum website. They're caricatures of the um, global Jew, international Jew. Yeah, they're caricatures of the international Jew. But I'm not necessarily sure that they perceived it as thinking negative thoughts about other people, but rather they perceived it as protective thoughts about themselves, uh, self-defense, preserving their own dignity and honor. Maybe they perceived themselves as having been emasculated. I guess all I really have to say more about this right now is that I really do feel like I've hit on something here about the role of um, that sort of mental creation of the uh, environment around yourself as uh, dangerous or um, threatening. And, and I suppose how people either individually or collectively come to commit violent crimes. But there is some fine line somewhere in there where perceiving yourself as either a victim or in danger of victimization threatened, you know, your survival threatened, depending on how seriously you believe yourself to be in danger and uh, how far wrong you are and how extreme your um, self-protective behavior in response to that perception turns out to be, like, that's how uh, violent crimes are committed. The perpetrator always perceives themselves, I think, as uh, a victim who is correcting a state of injustice and defeating that old enemy, to borrow the phrase from Professor Forsyth. So now, I'm not sure if I worked that segment out as well as I wanted to just now about uh, how the Nazis created their own hell through their misperceptions of themselves as victims of the Jews and, uh, uh, you know, and then essentially throwing the Jews in the fires, you know, throwing the Jews in the pit, trying to purify the nation and the world of their uh, pollution. Um, I'm not sure I did such a great job with that, and I actually have this really intensely uncomfortable feeling now walking away from it because... Uh, I don't know, I guess because it it is a pretty black and white situation where it's very clear who the um, perpetrators were and who the victims were, and uh, it's unsettling to um, to really try to understand the thought process of how it happened from the perpetrator's point of view. It's I think that's something that's very uncomfortable that nobody likes to do trying to understand, you know, trying to really understand violent criminals is something that I think is very, uh, um, you know, deeply unsettling. And, and it's why I think the people who are best at that kind of work, like law enforcement work in general, uh, tend to be people who um, see the world as, uh, as fairly black and white. But I think that this process of understanding is ultimately the only way to to end the cycle like if you um have this mind that only has two categories of good people and bad people that duality itself in the mind is going to continue creating a reality where conflict will continue to happen conflict will always continue to happen but it will be it can only be um, resolved through the defeat of uh, one of the um, partners in the conflict. And the, the alternative to uh, conflict, which is resolved by force, is uh, therapy. But um, does anybody really want to understand? And would understanding force us to see things about ourselves that we don't want to see? That we're maybe not so innocent and not so good as we like to imagine. That we don't belong to that Aryan master race in the sense of like the uh, category of people who are uh, all good and um, and thus naturally and innately superior to the uh, category of people who are all bad.
I know, I feel like this is kind of tapering off into a really weird ending that I hadn't planned for um, or anticipated even, but I guess just to um, wrap it up, I, 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 where, where I was originally wanting to go with this uh, second bullet point about root causes is um, that a certain po at a certain point, I think it's important to step away from trying to figure out uh, uh, I don't know the 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 metaphors and the the uh, spiritual realities, the uh, the the dream versions or the uh, nightmare versions, you know, the uh, the myths about Satan and uh, uh, the Messiah, the the um, and even like abstract categories like victim and perpetrator, uh, to stop trying to play with those symbols and put them in their correct order and instead to actually come down into, um, I suppose, documentary history and start asking those hard questions about what were the root causes and what do we have to do to prevent this from happening again in the future. At the end of uh, World War II, uh, at some point, you know, over the last part of the uh, 20th century in America, we developed this um, motto about the Holocaust, never again. You know, this should never happen again. And we, uh, we were committed. And I, you know, hope we still feel very committed to, um, to that never happening ever again. And yet, what the hell is going on with uh, the reappearance of people identifying as Nazis with um, the rise of you know, right-wing thinking. Obviously, we didn't understand properly. We didn't understand and we didn't imp implement the um, safeguards and, the, and make the uh, decisions and um, policy changes, I suppose, that would uh, uh, follow through on that commitment. There's an extremely ugly anti-immigrant sentiment that's becoming a lot more visible in America, and I don't know that it was ever really not a part of um, what, I don't know, American consciousness. Um, it was just a lot more quiet, I think, until recently, and perhaps it didn't have th the same kind of support from the executive office that it has now. And this is an ongoing concern around the world. Um, it's not, This is. these aren't questions that uh, have answers yet. It was, I think, just quite recently, I think as recently as 2015, just uh, just a few years ago, really, uh, the United Nations called for <clears throat> more research to be done uh, in the root causes of genocide. They don't have the answers, and I don't have the answers, but I do believe that this effort to understand and the effort to be sincere about it is the only way to get to where we want to go. If that is really where we want to go, where we're um, manifesting a world where there's no more hell, there's no more war, there's no more genocide, no more grossly unjust violence, it starts with that effort to understand root causes. And furthermore, I don't know that uh, I believe it's... Um, a problem that can be solved individually, trying to understand how does my thinking, you know, how can I change my thinking to avoid going to hell? Really, I think the, the, the only way that's going to work, because I really don't think anyone entirely creates their own reality. We are all sharing a reality together. And so I don't know that that way of thinking is going to work. I think we have to think about not instead of how do I change my thinking <clears throat> so that I don't go to hell, how do I change my thinking and how do we all change our thinking so that no one goes to hell? That's really the only way that I think is going to work. To recognize that it's a systemic problem. It's like uh, the prisoner's dilemma in game theory. Who knows, maybe I can do come back to game theory in the future 
I think it's a really interesting way to think about trust and the strategy we need to develop to manifest a true paradise reality that's sustainable if indeed that is what we really want and um and I feel pretty confident it is so if I am trying now to to find some punchy little conclusion now to give this episode a sense a feeling of closure and some satisfying narrative arc that uh uh that I think we like to have with our stories um or um or, or narrative arcs uh, or what have you the moral message of today's episode then is be kind to each other and don't be a Nazi and